everyone, and welcome back to the Fanfiction Tapes. I'm your host today, Maya, pronouns she, her, and today I am joined by... Uh, I am pronouns Dylan, my name is he, him. Uh, I'm Wolf. And I'm our producer, Ian, pronouns he, him. Our topic for today is Tragic Heroes, and last week we talked about Tragedies Summon. As a part of that, we did touch on the Tragic Hero. I actually wasn't there for that episode. Uh, turns out... Spilling an entire water bottle uh, on top of your laptop, not great for its health, especially while it's on. My, uh, that was such a tragic hero moment. <laughs> <laughs> but I am told this was mentioned. Uh, and a tragic hero is a character who is heroic and in a good place at the start of the work, but falls from that good place and often does a lot of kind of fucked up things due to some characteristic fatal flaw. Uh, something often said about these characters and that I got uh, the name of this episode from as just a post on Tumblr, they could have avoided their fate, even in a simple manner, if only they had been anyone other than who they were. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I, I think, yeah, like, Tragic Hero starts from that position of generally, like, either being, you know... a, a very powerful, right? Like either wealthy or nobility, right? Especially in the traditional sense of tragic hero. And there's someone who possibly eschews a lot of that or goes against the grain somewhat because they're more noble, more honorable, more faithful, more blah, blah, blah. But their, their one specific problem is that one fatal flaw and that defines the tragedy. And in the traditional sense, right, they were always meant to be something that like a cautionary tale, right? Like, hey, this in excess is a problem. Be aware of this in yourself and try to avoid it so you can be better and don't suffer the same fate, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, if, if I remember right, these fatal flaws are sometimes pretty admirable qualities. You know, loyalty, ambition. Because uh, ambition can be a good thing, but yeah. if you're too loyal to the wrong people... uh well, then you end up like Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> Not a bad example. But uh, <laughs> also sometimes the, the, the qualities are things that are less than like, uh, you know, less than wanted, right? Like prideful or greed or something else, right? Something that isn't necessarily good. Something that in excess isn't necessarily good. We should be clear. Yeah, but there's also times where like a good quality... It depends on like the world, right? So like a good quality or something a bit more virtuous is a character's downfall as well. Mm. Like someone's honor or belief in like a rule system or compassion, you know, that's their downfall because they live in a world in which compassion is considered something weak. Cough, cough. Ned Stark, Game of Thrones, cough, cough. So yeah. you wanted to bring it up. <laughs> like he is a perfect example of that. He is honorable to a fault. Yeah, and... And that's his downfall. Yeah, and we'll talk a bit more about it when we go back uh, into this, but why don't we start off uh, where we are? Where are we starting, Maya? The, the kind of classic tragic hero, at least the one that sticks out the best to me, is Macbeth uh, from the play of the same name by William Shakespeare. Uh, and really, that's just that's just the Shakespeare work that stuck the most with me when I was reading it in high school, so that's why I selected Macbeth uh, as the first one to talk about. 
I mean, what we're dealing with here is like a guy who has like a prophecy told to him, and then basically like a good uh, someone who's considered a tragedy. Yeah, he's considered like, good, and then is messed up by a prophecy, and it's like uh <laughs> and it ends very bad for him. Yeah. So for listeners who are not familiar with the plot of Macbeth, well, I, I honestly would recommend getting a one of those like reader copies where you can get where they've got the old English, but they've also got, you know, something that's easier to understand uh, today. But obviously, or, you, you know, probably just don't get have... good. <laughs> okay. Not all of us are skilled with languages, Ian. Skill issue. Yes. Um, right. But for those of you who don't have time to read through Macbeth, uh, just kind of here's a basic plot summary pulled off of Wikipedia. Macbeth is a brave Scottish general, and he receives a prophecy from a trio of witches. And this is actually where kind of the, our current usage of uh, boil and bubble, toil and trouble comes from, is from the lines of these witches. I just thought that was neat um, trivia about that that I remembered. Anyway, Macbeth gets this prophecy that he's going to end up king of Scotland. So what does he do but murder the current king? And he has to kind of keep murdering more people to keep himself uh, out of suspicion. And both him and his wife fall pretty quickly to some intense paranoia. And this leads to an eventual civil war where the opposing side actually marches on Macbeth with, uh, using a bunch of trees as cover, and it kind of involves another prophecy with his downfall. Prophecies feature pretty heavily in some of Shakespeare's works, especially this one. Actually, I wonder if the marching trees in Macbeth had any influence on Tolkien's uh, Ents and the March on Isengard. I'm fairly sure they did because there's there's another reference to Macbeth in Tolkien as well. The most important prophecy of Macbeth is that no man of woman born shall kill him. By Elizabethan standards, uh, being born by cesarean section doesn't count. And that's why uh, Macduff who was ripped untimely from his mother's womb, is the man who will kill Macbeth. That prophecy may be reminding you of the prophecy of the death of the witch king of Angmar, the leader of the Nazguls in Lord of the Rings. No man shall slay him, and it is Eowyn. In fact, a woman. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> who uh, ends up doing the dirty deed for dirt cheap. <laughs> Assisted by a hobbit. Who is also not a man. Filthy hobbit. He's a hobbit. <laughs> and look at these Lord of the Rings nerds over here. God. I know, geez. <laughs> we really need to have a proper Lord of the Rings episode. <laughs> I mean, we are talking about Lord of the Rings. Do we... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, actually, that is kind of a neat segue into the next one I wanted to mention, uh, who is, while Macbeth is very much this classic tragic hero, he 
meets this definition very well, the one that we just talked about, and is generally regarded as, yeah, absolutely a tragic hero. Boromir uh, from Lord of the Rings is someone I wanted to mention because he's a bit more wiggly, as I like to put it. Uh, tragic heroes are usually the main character of the work. And Boromir is about the most side character of the main nine as it's possible to get. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. <laughs> Especially because he is uh, murked in the first book. I think it's the first book, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's the first movie. First book. <laughs> I'm going to beat you with a stick. Um, anyways. <laughs> I-, I need to reread those books. It has been too long. Maybe I should do that during finals this year. But yeah, yeah, he he's he's yeah one of the first. I think the point for him, right, is to be a bit more of that cautionary tale, in that traditional sense for not necessarily the audience, but the other characters, right? Yeah, and to be to, to I be mean, there I, I for think to some degree the audience too. Well, yeah, because but... right, like Lord of the Rings was supposed to be like the the British uh, myth, right? Mm. That's that's why Tolkien made it. Well, no, no, you're you're right. Uh, that he made it that way for that, and because he just wanted to write a war story where he honored his buddies, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, true. Even if he wouldn't admit to that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it, it, it's. I think Boromir is definitely there for Frodo as well, right? A lot, and I think a tragic hero for Boromir is the best way to play that for Frodo to, not necessarily to bring Frodo down, but to. Enlighten like beware Frodo. the power of the ring. Yeah, like that, and to enlighten him to more as to just how heavy a burden it can be and is, and, and what it would mean. Right, I think. Hmm. And I think a tragic hero in Boromir is a great way to play that, and it contrasts well with um, who's the other one they meet later? Faramir. Faramir. Yes, Faramir. Yes. Yeah, his brother. Isn't Faramir a little... It, I'm a little bit ropey on this. It's been a long time. Isn't he a little bit tragic as well in some ways? Not necessarily tragic hero, I would say, but definitely... He, yeah, he has uh, daddy issues. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, like, but... inferiority complex compared to his brother and his father. That's he's unlike got him. issues, but <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I would really quite call him yeah. a tragic character. Yeah, you know, I don't think I'd call him tragic, but, like, he, it definitely contrasts well between the two, I think. As you know, having introduced us to Boromir and seeing his failure, and then Faramir, and you know, seeing like what necessarily are his shortcomings that aren't necessarily his own fault, right? Hmm. And, and seeing that in the eyes of Frodo, or through the eyes of Frodo, I wish I should say. But yeah, like Boromir, you know, don't let me do all the talking. But Boromir is interesting because he's not a main character, and for a lot of people, when they think tragic heroes. Generally speaking, tragic heroes are main characters. I know I'm going to get some shit for saying this, but another tragic hero, and I think since Boromir, we've seen this a little bit more often where the tragic heroes tend to not necessarily be the main characters in the stories that they're in from time to time. We mentioned earlier, Ned Stark is an example. Uh, Like it or hate it, Sirius Black is an example. You know, uh, of yeah. tragic heroes that aren't the main focus. Mm. They're meant to be there for other characters to spring their development forward or to do something for them in some particular way, shape, or form, or to set yeah. the story even potentially. Uh, most of the characters 
we mentioned today are the main characters. And as I was kind of saying, I definitely wanted to mention someone who wasn't. No, no, fair. Be a little, be a little weird with it. The thing is with Barmy is like he dies really early on, but like that effect on like the other characters of him dying is felt, you know, throughout the, the rest of the story still. Mm-hmm. Like where there's Fireman, Danifor, or the rest of the fellowship. Yep. Like it, it's definitely far reaching and sticks with them for a yeah. long period of time. And I think that's also the goal when you write a tragic hero is that it affects, the, you know, the world around them a bit more. Because that's kind of like, I, th- I think the point for that makes a better tragic hero is when their tragedy has far lasting stuff. Like, I think a, tra- a tragic hero, which is tragic within itself, you know, I don't know if it's as fulfilling, but it's just more depressing <laughs> to show. Yeah, they didn't have much effect on anyone or anything else, even. <laughs> well, I think some of that comes from the fact that if your tragic hero is not the main character, more often than not, their enemy isn't a specific person, right? They don't necessarily have a specific antagonist. You might point to like, oh, you know, Macbeth's antagonist is blah, blah, blah. But generally their antagonists tend to be these more, uh, I think the word is mercurial, or just like these very vague things like a type of emotion or a type of, uh, you know, personality quirk or the world itself reacting to the tragic thing they've done, right? Yeah, it's conceptual. Yeah, (laughs) That's their enemy. if your tragic hero isn't the main character, then if you're going to do them, their tragedy needs to affect a lot more, right? Because what they're going against or what they're doing that is perceived as wrong, right, needs to have far-reaching, more far-reaching effects because they are, generally speaking, more connected to the world in such a way than what other characters might be. Speaking of a guy who has a lot of impact on the rest of the the story and world and other characters. You want to talk about Mr. Anakin Skywalker? <laughs> yeah, this was uh, one that I honestly included mostly because when I was doing research for this episode, because I am not much of a scholar of this side of literature. Technically, I'm not much of a scholar of literature at all. Uh, but I saw this mentioned a lot as a contemporary character and something that we try to do on the podcast is not just talk about the things that interest us the most, uh, at myself and Ian, uh, which we do a lot, but also mention things that are pretty popular and that more people are going to get, because that's kind of part of the point. Incidentally, uh, we did talk about Star Wars Episode Three last week when you weren't here. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I think the thing about Anakin is... Whether you think the arc is good or not, I think conceptually it's actually quite good. I think it works, and Order 66 is an amazing sequence. The What we did talk about also is that it's not full-on tragedy with Anakin, because by the end he does get that redemption, but there is a tragic element in he dies. <laughs> It's still, like, I mean, 
is it easy to say that Vader and Anakin Skywalker as a whole is still considered like the best Star Wars character? I I can't like comment on that. Not a huge not like not a huge Star Wars buff, right? So I can't super comment on it, but I think he's definitely up there. In I, the I think with movies, maybe. Yeah, with all the other yeah, with all the other different uh I, Star Wars franchise stuff, right? He's there's probably a lot not of the most popular anymore. Oh, you're saying mo- most popular, not best. I was. I mean, I still think he's like, like one of the best characters. Like, you know, I mean, like, even if you look like a, and I'm talking exclusively canon here. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, just, you know, who cares? Okay, your books don't mean anything anymore. But uh. You know, even like a character like Luke has so little time dedicated to him compared to Anakin just because Anakin has, you know, an entire TV show chronicling him during the Clone Wars and those Clone Wars characters get a lot, you know, characters mm-hmm. like Padme, characters like Obi-Wan, even the newer ones yeah, I mean, the, introduced. The, the reason Anakin has more is he lived in a more interesting time. Pretty much. <laughs> Luke had, like, a fairly boring life for most of his life. Yeah, farm boy a week later takes out the Death Star. <laughs> he, he goes from being literally nobody at all to uh, BFFs with the head of state <laughs> over the course of, like, a couple months. But it is interesting looking at the three characters we have talked about so far because they are each, hard, like, influenced hard by an outside force manipulating them, whether it is One Ring, uh, Prophecy, or once again with Anakin here, who has a bunch, whether it is, you know... Mr. Wrinkles. Yeah, Palpatine, uh, or, like, Prophecy, Jedi Council politics. So much stuff, you know? I mean, that's, that's his flaw, right? Like, he doesn't have any, you know... I, I know a lot of people can you know will say, oh, this is just Anakin's character being badly written, and it is a possibility, right? But a lot of his, you know, some people will have started to argue in more recent times, looking back at Star Wars, whether you you know agree or disagree with them, right? Have started to argue like, oh, it's it's he's supposed to not be super clear. He's supposed to not have a solid point of view because that is his flaw, right? Mm. He's I mean, easily. People don't have necessarily solid perspectives, solid points of view. A lot of people don't know what the hell they want to do with their life. I mean, fair. Uh, And that's that's normal. One of the most interesting Star Wars comments I have heard from, like, creators uh, was Filoni talking about how different Anakin would have been if Qui-Gon Jinn had survived. Because one of the big elements that was discussed was how does Anakin improve if he has a father figure instead of like an older brother figure uh, leading him? Which, and you know, despite Obi-Wan being a little bit different from like your typical Jedi of the time, Qui-Gon is a lot different from your typical Jedi. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what makes, you know, a tragedy a tragedy is that if only this slight impossibility had been different, it could have been avoided, right? If Anakin yeah. had had 
a different kind of support than what Obi-Wan was able to give him when he was, you know, growing up in the Jedi Temple, he would have turned out very differently, and the way Palpatine operated may well not have worked on him. Mm. I, I don't know if that necessarily could have stopped what Palpatine was up to. But it makes it a lot harder. Yes, it would have made it a lot harder, and I think that would also itself be interesting. You know, not having as tight a grip as he does on Anakin because Qui-Gon Jinn is there. And, you know, Qui-Gon Jinn, despite everything, is like, would change a lot of things. Also considering his relationship with Dooku, there's a lot there. Yeah. Under no, underrated character. <laughs> and also, I the main way that Palpatine got revealed wouldn't have happened because he wouldn't have told Anakin because he wouldn't have had that grasp on him. Mm. Dylan, you do have something you want to talk about that we started to talk about kind of in our pre-show where we're getting set up and figuring out, uh, you know, okay, this is what's on here. Do we want to make any changes? You talked about some characters from Game of Thrones, which is not something I'm really very familiar with myself. Well, when you talk about Game of Thrones characters, everyone is basically a tragic something or other. <laughs> well, I, I think, you, you know, you, you do have to make the distinction, right, between tragic hero and tragedy, right? Because yeah. I think it's, it's easy to write tragedy. Anyone can go through tragedy or have some tragic moments, but tragic hero is very, I feel, a very specific thing of it's focused on that character's one specific flaw, right? that winds them up in trouble yeah and, and like i i would argue the best example of that from game of thrones is ned stark absolutely right? ned stark is the best example because in the end you know it's he makes like a bunch of mistakes he's too trusting of peter baelish Littlefinger, and that messes him up he's not he doesn't take Renly's offer because he's also wedded to like the laws of realm. And it's like, well, Renly, you want to be king and you're not Robert's heir. That's Stannis. So I, I'm not going to back you. He and he, his history of seeing what the mounting and Amory Lorch did to Rhaegar's children during the second of King's Landing means he doesn't want to tell Robert about. Cersei's children being incestuous bastards because he doesn't want to see de de dead children again. So it, it's this mixture of all these good qualities, his compassion, his loyalty, his belief in law, and all, and, and being a trusting of people who were like very close to his wife when they were younger. And all that ends up messing him up. And the oh, first... And the first time he, his downfall again is when he's forced to lie and say, I've committed treason, he gets executed for it. So he even does the right thing there for his daughters to try and save their lives, and he ends up dead for it anyway. It's like he does everything right and ends up dead. <laughs> Well, yeah, because, uh, again, like, the greatest flaw, the flaw that winds him up in the hot water to begin with, right, the one particular flaw is that he's too much, he's 
too honorable of a man in a world specifically not necessarily the game of thrones world not westeros itself but king's landing yeah yeah king's landing he's too honorable in an area that does not want that honorableness right they 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 Mm. don't it's not required there it's actively harmful and ned stark proves that yeah an honorable man can't necessarily sit the throne in king's landing right and it work yeah and like we see uh when Tyrion goes in there Tyrion has to be a bit of a bastard to you know survive but Tyrion's overcompensating a lot and this is an interesting discussion because when people talk about Tyrion they describe Tyrion as sort of an anti-hero or a tragic hero I describe him more as like a tragic or like a sympathetic villain because <laughs> this- that's fair because despite everything, Tyrion is a shitty person. <laughs> like, yeah, you well, know. Yeah. The, in the books, he's, I think yes. people watch the show and think he's less shitty. I think that's also partly Peter Dinklage is just a good actor and he yeah. makes you like him a lot. <laughs> yeah, but... In the books, th- he, yeah, he's he's pretty shitty. In the books, he's a lot more vengeful and it's like you're arguing like, you know, but we like him, he's funny and all this, but... And he's been, you know, messed over in life and giving a lot of hard, like, hardship. But it's funny that the guy, the Lannister we hate the most is probably the most, I don't want to say morally good, but the one that is, like, the most honorable is Jamie. Like, Jamie tries to kill a kid. Honestly, but, but somehow he's also the one people hate the most i feel cersei no but when 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 you start he throws a kid oh, out the you, window no fair fair and yeah. he stabs ned in the leg in the first book but he also ends up the one you like the most because he's like the most sociable he's very kind he cares a lot about you know his family even in messed up ways and he starts to even resent cersei and you know forms a good relationship with characters like brienne and saves her life and stuff and it's just like a way more of a cool dude. Well, like, I, I would say Jamie suffers from a similar problem to Ned, right? That it's not honorableness. It's not being honorable that he suffers from. It's loyalty, right? It's his loyalty to his family and specifically Cersei. That is his flaw. Yeah, it's that and vows and how he views vows. Like he took a vow to protect a king, which he later killed, but he killed him to save an entire city that the king was planning on blowing up. But Ned, Ned Stark still judged him for breaking his vow of protecting no, the king. Everyone judged him. Yeah, he got called a kingslayer. And, but he never fought back against that. <laughs> you know, he was just like, if that's what they want to call me, that's what they want to call me. And that sort of like papers his view a bit on like other people and feeling, you know, a, a re- and resenting people. Like, he did this very virtuous thing. He broke an oath to protect people, the common people. That's what he did. But people looked down on him on it for killing someone that they were going to kill anyway. Just because he he made a vow. And I, I do think it's interesting when you look at vows and how they are in Game of Thrones. Like, you look at Jon Snow's vow to the Night's, uh, the Night's Watch. Like... Yeah, he sleeps with wildlings, you know, egret, 
and is given a lot of offers by Stannis, and Stannis is like, oh yeah, we'll make you Lord of Winterfell. And he's like, no, I won't take that. But he still gets killed because he lets wildlings for the wall. And the Night's Watch like, don't like that. It's like, come on. He, he's doing everything for you guys. Just because he, he believes in something greater. <laughs> well, again, I mean, that just comes back to the flaws of the world, right? Where yeah. you're going up against just inherent beliefs within the world that these things aren't necessarily bad if taken out of this world and if you were doing them in a different place or a different time or a different again world but because they're in the world of westeros and game of thrones these potentially virtuous or good things are seen as flaws and bad things because of what ends up happening to a lot of the characters in yeah. different ways, shape, or and, and so many characters, you know, we already said Ned, but you also get, like, Rob, who, you know, does something virtuous by marrying a girl who he slept with just so she didn't have to have a bastard. Because, ah, fuck Rob. <laughs> because of the trauma of he saw that his mother had for John. All my homies hate Rob. <laughs> uh, or Theon. Like, Fionn has insane issues and does terrible things. But it's like, you still have to feel sorry for him because after he does those things, he's tortured to near death by Ramsay Bolton. There's so many good characters and they go through so much. And even if they do these terrible things, you still feel so bad for them because you can understand. Not like say that what you did was bad and that means you're irredeemable but more like you don't deserve this level of you know what you've gone through since that's fair now we're going on to someone else and i think everyone can talk about this one we're talking about someone who i think is not a tragic hero he's a tragic protagonist what do you guys think I think he's a tragic hero. Now, so we're, we're going to talk about Walter White from the hit show Breaking Bad. And I actually haven't seen Breaking Bad. It's something I'll get around to eventually, but I'm, I must say I'm not terribly Same. interested in an, another story of a terribly sad white man. Uh, I'd much rather have lesbians. Thank you very much. Fair enough. Look, I, I am very obvious about what I enjoy. But... I have heard a lot of good things about Walter White's writing, and from what I understand, uh, he is a tragic hero. He starts off as a high school teacher that was fucked over by uh, former friends, and God, if I don't <laughs> yeah. understand that story, I a couple of teachers I had in high school had uh, that kind of thing happen to them. Yeah, so to give a, a bit more context, Walter White is a teacher who gets uh, cancer and he has to pay for medical bills. Those friends who went on to form like this company uh, that he was once a part of and gave like, all the input and ideas on stuff that they eventually made a lot of money off do offer to pay for his medical bills. But he, he has so much pride that he can't accept that. So he starts to break bad, <laughs> which is he goes into the drug business and becomes a drug lord, and he keeps on going deeper and deeper, you know, into it. 
And that's sort of why I would not call him a tragic hero. He doesn't necessarily do anything heroic. He's a normal guy. He's our protagonist, and we follow, and we see a normal guy with too much pride that leads him to becoming Heisenberg, the drug lord. And, you know, the only time he sort of does anything good is right at the end of the story. And I don't think that's enough. I think that's just at that point him trying to do a little bit of good before he dies. But it doesn't outweigh all the terrible things he does. Puts his family through, puts the people who he drags into, you know, his schemes through. You know, he hurts so many people. <laughs> that's, to me, yeah, that's that's something that a tragic hero does. Macbeth killed so many people. Yes, but I think the thing is, is what Walter White says in, I think it's like either the final or penultimate episode. He didn't need to keep on doing it. He had enough money to pay for his medical bills, but he did it because he liked it, because he was good at it, because he enjoyed doing it. That's why he kept on going, because he has too much of an ego. And well, I don't. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. That's the These... point. The, these characters get Macbeth. There is a point where he could have stopped, where he did not need to keep going, but he did. A tragic hero, there is always a point where if they were anyone else, they could have stopped. They could have said, I have enough money to pay for my cancer treatment. I don't need to keep going. But Walter has been used and abused by his years in the public school system. He was frustrated, I'm certain. Having been through the public school system, I can relate with that. And wanting to be good at something and make a shit ton of money from it, I I can see why he wouldn't want to pull back. Yeah, I would just I say I can see how that could be difficult. I would just say, even as terrible him, as he is, yeah, calling him a, a hero, I I would just call him like well a tragic, tragic character. Heroes, Tragic heroes are never heroes. Not by the end. They they start out as sure. a somewhat heroic character, but by the end, they are all terrible people. Yeah, or dead. Or dead. Or yeah. both. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Usually I, both. I would just say, like, not to besmirch teachers, but I wouldn't call, necessarily call him a hero. He's just a guy. <laughs> I, I, yeah, he is just a guy. But again, like... He is also a very, very talented chemist. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, as much as you science guys would like to say that's heroic. Uh... <laughs> I see what it is. You're just yeah. being teacherist and scientist. I I'm anti-science. So don't get vaccinated. <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> I agree. Everyone Welcome. Everyone knows you're anti-science after <laughs> each time you complain I bring it into D&D. That's just because it's annoying. <laughs> Speaking of talented scientists, <laughs> do you, uh, I, that's, that's a horrible segue. I, I guess this it character works. is not a scientist. I, She's an engineer. <laughs> yes, there is a difference. Okay, you gotta admit guy. they are adjacent. Yeah, they are adjacent, but there is an important difference. As someone who works in both fields. There is an important difference between the uh, two. Uh, potato pasta. Who gives a shit? <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
The next character we wanted to mention during today's episode is Jinx from both League of Legends and the hit show Arcane. I think we're probably mostly going to be referencing Arcane here. Unless we have any League players here uh, in Wolf? Haha, <laughs> no. Yeah. Most of us uh, do not wish to touch that cesspool with a 10-foot cesspool. Mm, cesspool with a 10-foot pole. Well, I played it once <laughs> against AI because, <laughs> like, huh, I'm curious. It was all right. I don't, like, I understand the game, I guess, but that's about it. I've seen other play, people play it. That That's my experience with League. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to talk about Arcane, I have plenty of experience with that. I love that. If, you know, that's the thing that I love about League is Arcane, the things that aren't League. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great thing about Arcane is you don't even have to, like, know League to think it's amazing. <laughs> True. But yeah, uh, I said last week, and I think uh, Ian and Helena, who was on last week, agreed that we considered Jinx is pretty much the main character of that show. <laughs> Do you disagree, Maya? Or Wolf? She's at the very least a, a big focus, right? I. I don't know if I fully agree that she is the main character, but she's definitely a big focus. And her story and what she goes through and is dealing with is a big focus. Arcane doesn't quite have, like, a singular main character. I think the term here is deuteragonist, uh, but I might be misremembering. A deuteragonist would be the second character to a protagonist. Okay, so I am misremembering then. Yeah. Um, you would have a deuteragonist and a tritagonist. Uh, but Arcane. Well, Ar Arcane splits its time pretty well between Vi and Jinx. Yeah. My point was that she, for the most part, is the one who moves the plot forward the most. She is the one who causes the big incidents that changes, you know, the story direction. Whether it's what she does in episode three, episode four, uh, episode uh, seven, <laughs> episode eight, or episode nine. All those episodes, like the big changes that happen are either directly Jinx or indirectly Jinx's. Uh, fault. Whether that is, you know, how Jace changes his mind on certain things, you know, after seeing what Jinx does, or uh, how Jinx uh, steals things and that changes how he perceives things, you know. And that's why I would say she is, you know, the main character, is that all the big moments in which things are going well, Jinx is one who shows up and completely ruins it and changes like the direction of the story that's, that's fair but i, I wouldn't I, I would argue that doesn't necessarily make her the main character i mean there's a difference between protagonist and main character is what i would say i, I won't call her I, a protagonist I, I just don't i don't think there really is a main a singular main character in arcane sure but i would call her a central character then i think she's the most she is a central she is a central character again i don't know if i'd call her I don't think I'd call her the most important, but I would call her a central character. I don't. Well, I don't think the story happens without Jinx. <laughs> the story doesn't happen without any of the characters. 
if if you don't have Silco, the story doesn't happen. If you don't have Vi, sure. the story doesn't happen. But I think if you don't have Caitlyn, the story doesn't happen. But I think the most is lost with Jinx, and like her conflict is the main focus as well. I just think anything, any aspect you look at it. I think she's pretty much the most important in all aspects. I would say Jinx is the driving force, right? Yeah. Whereas other characters aren't necessarily, a lot of other characters are reacting to what she does. She is the driving force for the narrative for a I, lot of it. I don't but think I'd even say that. I would say that Arcane in a general sense is very poly perspective or multi-perspective mm-hmm. story-wise. Yeah, yes. you do have separate stories and they are all moving in a direction uh, at, like, different speeds, whether it's Mel, Victor, uh, Heimerdinger, Jace, Vi, Caitlyn, Silco, you know, they're all moving in a direction at different speeds. But it's just, like, Jinx is also one whose story hops a lot and affects, like, a lot of different people's. We don't often just... Well, because she's not yeah. tied to her own central story, right? No. Like, Arcane's focused on, you have Vi and Caitlyn's story. Then you have um, Jace and... Uh, Victor. Name, uh, Victor's story. Then you have... It's been a while. The black kid. That's going to sound racist. Okay. Echo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you have... I, I would say, like, a li- like, Echo, his story comes into, like, the very last as the fireflies, right? And pop free, yeah. So I, I think your two big focuses, though, are Jace and Vi and their two stories mm. and how, th- you know, and they're like the main stories of the show. And yeah. then Jinx and the others play off of that until you get the last little arc and you're dealing with more of the Fireflies and Echo and Jinx is a major part of that. Yeah, I, f- I would call definitely call Jace and Vi the protagonist of the story. That's why I would call them. I think... In Arcane, there are two major stories, and the protagonists are Vi and Jace. But to roll back around, how is Jinx a tragic hero? Yeah, you want to talk about that? <laughs> so I'm not the one who put that in there. I don't know if I'd really call her a tragic hero, mostly because the... um the forces that kind of drive her to some of those actions aren't things I would necessarily say are character flaws. She hallucinates um, frequently, and that drives a lot of her motivations. She's not um, entirely sane, and she's (laughs) manipulated to an extreme degree by Silco. And I, I, I can't really just square and say these are character flaws given that I deal with some of that. Counterpoint. The way that she is manipulated by Silco is she is extremely eager to please her family and friends. And that is a character trait that is apparent from the very beginning before everything goes wrong and she starts having hallucination, trauma-induced hallucinations. Yeah, I, I was going to say the very first problem where, you know, Jinx blows up the factory, right, and ends up killing, you know, both of their friends and Vanda and hurting Vi and Vander yeah. and also, yeah, hurting Vander as well and killing and getting him killed, right? I would say that 
that moment is the one time where she's a little bit of a tragic hero in that her her desperate need to show that she is to prove herself to she can contribute family, right yeah yeah she can do she something just, that she's capable she just wants to help she only wanted to help at that one moment i would say that's where if someone did view her as a tragic hero that's where it would stand out to me as because that flaw is what leads to a lot of things happening that comes afterwards. Yeah, the the rest of the story, she is basically, you know, working for a kingpin. <laughs> and I would say like, it's an interesting example, right? Because her tragic hero leads into everything else that goes wrong for her. And in leads, uh, she isn't a character that... Generally speaking, for the modern tragic hero, right, a lot of the times nowadays you'll see that a character, and we're going to bring one up that I think is an interesting point to this, is that a character goes into their tragic hero moment, like this arc for themselves, and they come out the better for it, the stronger for it. They've learned, they've grown, right? The world might still be against them, but they, they, they're able to turn it around at some point in the future, right? Jinx is one that isn't doing that she is a tragic hero that is going down that path and instead of getting better for it she gets arguably she's going to get worse for it right depending on where they go with the story i think it's like arcane season two for it Um, yeah like you know she's going down a darker path maybe she'll come out the end of it better maybe she won't and that's interesting for a tragic hero at least in modern more modern terms since it does since we do use the tragic hero as a thing of you know, something to go through and then come out the other side stronger for. Jinx seems to be the opposite of that as of yeah. right now. Um, I was going to say that you guys kind of did convince me. Yeah, I'd say Jinx is a tragic Kira after listening to your arguments. Um, that yeah, it's that uh, that people pleaserness, which is not helpful for anyone. Not a bad trait necessarily, but again, right? It, it's not good for that the world is. she's in. And that, that that comes from my own experience with being a people pleaser, but yeah. It can definitely be a bad thing too, especially, again, like in the term of Tragic Hero, if it's in the excess, it can absolutely be a bad thing. And that's generally the story that, that's generally almost always the cautionary tale for Tragic Heroes. Insert thing here, if in excess, is generally speaking quite bad. Most of the time. Uh, we're moving on to the one in Mile House just because I thought we needed some sort of successful tragic heroes. <laughs> you know, people who go through a lot of stuff but manage to come out of it. <laughs> I want, I'll focus on Dimitri mostly because he's the more important, but Elgard is really important to his story. We're talking about Fire Emblem Three Houses. So Dimitri is... If you gave him Anakin Skywalker and Jinx's trauma and mashed them up and times it by 10. <laughs> and But then he spent the next uh, like nine years pretending everything was fine until he broke. <laughs> and that is the interesting thing about Dimitri is he sees his father get de- decapitated in front of him. Pretty traumatic. Uh, and he struggles with a lot of not knowing who caused this tragedy that killed so many people who he was very close to and everything. Uh, 
And eventually, by the time that the second half of the game starts, where we involve a little time skip, Dimitri now talks to the dead voices of the people he's lost. When he sees your avatar character, who is his professor in the first part of the game, when they finally reunite after five years, his first words to them are, I knew you would uh, uh, begin haunting me too someday. Which is so sad. <laughs> and Dimitri's worldview even, like, in part one, he's a very compassionate, talented young man who's very mal-mannered. In part two, he crushes people's heads with his hands <laughs> and wants to gouge out prisoner of war's eyes. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> and it's not until he loses even more, but is told that he's not to blame and that he needs to move on and still has his friends to like comfort him and push him on that he starts to, you know, improve and get a little better. And he stops, his entire philosophy was living for the dead to avenge them, to make the voices in his head stop. But in the end, he doesn't. And his final battle against Edelgard, who he believes was a part of the tragedy that killed his parents. It's not about revenge anymore. It's about he disagrees with her ideals. Edelgard is a revolutionary who wants to dismantle the system, uh, reunite the entire continent, and dismantle the church. Dimitri wants to change things from the inside. He wants to repair what is there. And it's a disagreement between Dimitri who believes things like the church are needed to protect the weak, the people who cannot protect themselves, and Edelgard, who wants to tear everything down, basically restart, and, you know, whoever is the most talented, whoever is the strongest, will then rise to the top. And, it, and it's that battle of ideals, and even after he defeats Edelgard, he still puts out his hand to try and say, we can move forward together. But Edelgard uses a dagger that Dimitri had gifted her when they were children and throws at him in a one last opportunity to try and make her future be seen. And the shot, the final shot of Dimitri standing there with his lance in Edelgard's gut as she has thrown a dagger into her shoulder. Oh, it's cinema. <laughs> it is cinema. And it's so good just that this character who goes from basically masking all his trauma and making this character of this mal-mannered person becoming this monster, this, you know, he's called a boar, and eventually becoming a worthy king and someone who even offers his hand to his worst enemy. I just think that's amazing for a tragic hero. We see someone who is, a, you know, like we perceive him as normal, see him at his worst, and then see him at his best. And I just think that's great. And he is also, just for that, like the best Fire Emblem 
lord ever. You're wrong, but that's all right. I mean, who would your favorite lord be? Edelgard, obviously. Ah, lesbian. Yeah. Yeah. There's Maya's favorite now. But hey, you can also marry Rhea, and she's the Pope. Eh. Not into religious figures. Eh. Who also may or may not be your grandmother. <laughs> eh. Free houses law. Wild. Do you think we have time to get away with the mention of Catra again? Yeah, Catra. We've mentioned her. <laughs> <laughs> and done. <laughs> I think we can get away with Catra. I think we can probably get away with that. Um, Ian hasn't said anything to stop me, so... <laughs> then yeah, uh, Catra, I would argue she's a great example of the more modern type of uh, tragic hero that you tend to see nowadays where it's a character going through an arc of tragic hero and coming out the other side of it stronger and better for it. And Shira and Catra is a great example of that. Yeah, Catra uh, starts out, she's, well, she's not doing great necessarily, but she thinks she is. Her best friend's just been promoted to a high rank, and they're going to get to commit some war crimes together. You know, platonically. And over the next couple of seasons, her um, stubbornness as Adora leaves the Horde and realizes that, hey, wait, are we the, the baddies? Kind of fucked up. It, it, exactly. She has an are we the baddies moment. Katrin refuses stubbornly to have that moment. She's kind of hurt that Adora wouldn't leave for what the Horde did to her personally all the time, but would leave for what the Horde did to people she didn't even know. And she starts to spiral downwards pretty quickly, uh, culminating uh, at around the end of Season 3. And then throughout... Seasons 4 and 5, Katra starts to heal from this. And it's it's uh, kind of b before the show, we were talking about this because Wolf suggested this, actually, not me. Uh, shocker, I know. <laughs> I, I described it as a parabola, um, not the one you might see from projectile motion, but the inverse of that one where you start at high, go low, come back up. Because it's she starts off, she's doing okay-ish. She's in kind of a shitty place, but she thinks she's doing well. Um, which is, I think, part of what matters to create that arc of a tragic character. They don't need to actually be in a great place. They need to think they are. No, that's right. Like it, It's that self-confidence, right? That, you, you, again, like... You I was going to say delusion, but... Uh, yeah, delusion works as well. <laughs> like, it just has to come from a place of you feel in control and powerful... Whether you are or aren't isn't the key factor here. The fact that you feel like you are and have at least some modicum of something to sway over someone lower than you, that's what matters. I actually read something really interesting the other day about a scientific study where rats were placed in a sink or swim situation. Like they were literally just treading water until they were about to drown. Hmm. And that after rats were miraculously saved and then put back in the water, they were able to swim for longer, indicating that some 
expectation of I'll be able to make it, this delusion, is what actually enables survival mechanisms. Hmm. Anyhow, I just thought that was kind of neat and how, yeah, it's realistic for characters and people to be deluded. It is only human to be not all there. No, I, again, that's absolutely fair, right? Like, it, it's completely fair to fall into that delusion that you are fine, that you are good when you're absolutely not. And that's where Katra starts off at. She's in that delusion, or she, you know, she feels that she's powerful, and that culminates into her continuing to be stubborn with the door, her continuing to be a war criminal. Yeah, that like prideful in in the horde, right? Because the horde can't do any wrong. The horde, even though they've hurt me constantly, they didn't do what Adora did to me, so they can't be bad. Adora is the one that's wrong here, and also just some anger at Adora, misplaced anger at Adora as well, right? And everything else that she kind of has going on with her. But like, I, I would say the big, the more important character flaw is her just continued stubbornness, right? And that's the thing that. Her stubbornness to see what a door wants to see, her stubbornness to see a door's side of viewpoint or anything, her stubbornness to change, and that continues to lead her into this darker and darker path to where she finally gets to recognize and see, oh, this is what the Horde truly is. This is what I- I've been here for, and this leads her to finally try to do something good, to change things, right, for the better. And... Eventually, we do get that for Catra. We get her coming out the other end of that dark spiral for the better, having learned a lot, having eschewed a lot of that baggage, and you know, getting to the point of where she's you know getting over it slowly, right? Where she's coming, you know, being better for it. Essentially, I, I think it's interesting if you view Catra as a tragic hero, at least for. A particular part of it, you know, I said earlier, right, I, I think she takes that arc of villain to tragic hero to possibly anti-hero at the end, if you want to view it that way. I, I think, think she's just a plain hero at the end. I mean, well, no, I mean she's, fair. she's a bit abrasive, but I, I wouldn't really call her an anti-hero. She doesn't have any um, of the methods, I would say, are essential to an anti-hero. I mean, fair. I, I, I think... Uh, anti-hero might just be my thing because um i i think it's it might just be like a hey i think she could do this right like a fanon idea i guess you'd say but at, at the end of the day like i think her arc is villain to tragic hero to hero at the very least something in there uh, right she, she absolutely could be in a different universe an anti-hero no absolutely i i, I could absolutely see her doing that i'm sure there's fanfic out there that's written that yeah, like, oh yes, uh, uh, I I can confirm. I have read and or written that. But yeah, ultimately the the idea is this is a way I think you can if you're in interested in writing tragic heroes that you can write a tragic hero who isn't that isn't the sole focus of the character. That's not the whole point of the character, right? They can go through that arc and come out the better for it at the end of it all. So long as you take them through the full tragedy, right, and show. And have them learn from it. I think just in general, if you want to write characters that get a little wiggly, or you want to write characters that are fucking tragic as shit, just look into what Nate Stevenson does, because that's something I think he's really good at. Um, He likely had a lot of control over how that shaped out for Catra, 
he had control over that as a showrunner for uh, uh, She-Ra, the 2018 version, and also in his graphic novel Nimona, which was recently turned into a Netflix movie that I will not shut up about. Uh, really good. Thank you very much. Yes. Actually, I have it right here next to me because I've left it sitting on my desk. I need to visit visit it upon steamed at the soonest opportunity. Yeah, that's Catra. Amazing. <laughs> All right. Um, and we, we got some advice in there as well. Ian, do we have anything in the mailbag? We don't have any new mail today. So if you want to yell at us about how we've totally misrepresented your favorite character here, or why didn't we talk about such and such tragic hero today, uh, you can shoot us an email. Our address is fanfictapes at gmail.com. You can also leave us a comment on our YouTube channel or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also yell at us on social media. We have a presence on Twitter, formerly X. Maya runs that channel. Uh, that I do. Uh, I usually post uh, about when a couple hours before episodes uh, go up. And sometimes I will have behind-the-scenes stuff about what it was like to make the episode. Uh, and sometimes I'll also just plain shitpost. What can I say? They left me in control of the Twitter account. <laughs> I mean, that's what Twitter is for. Not much good for anything else anymore. Demon. Anything you would like to plug? Anything you would like to link? Ah, yeah, sure. Uh, I'll plug the other podcast I co-host on, The Burtcast, a debate, an unprofessional and debatably amusing podcast for fans by fans of How to Train Your Dragon. Not a lot going on in the world of How to Train Your Dragon right now, so you can also, this uh, channel is home to The Outcast, a more of the same, just marginally less dragons, where we cover bunches of different shows, movies, books, video games, Mostly movies and shows. Our most recent video was on Birdie Wing, a golf girl story. I love that show. It is wonderful. It is dumb. It is over the top, and it is fun. Uh, can you yeah, get? You, you've talked about yeah. that quite a bit. Maya should definitely watch it. I think, right, Wolf? <laughs> yeah, I, I think you would enjoy it. It's, it's, it's. You won't get any payoff, but it is. <laughs> it's subtlety. <laughs> <laughs> it's subtlety for its you know its lesbianism is as subtle as a large ass brick through a large ass window well that's about how subtle i am uh, <laughs> i think that's how subtle lesbians are in general <laughs> everything i've seen and understood <laughs> yeah like that's our most recent video i i do love doing it we've done it for a long time podcasting for that show has been quite fun and i have enjoyed it and i've enjoyed all the stuff we've done for how to train your dragon as well if you want me to i i think uh god like some of our most recent stuff has been covering the newest how to train your dragon show the nine realms that has been a treat quite fun for all the different hosts and people we've had to, been able to get on for that it has just been enjoyable i rewatched how to train your dragon uh on one of the flights i took because uh, I was like, oh, I'm going to have Wolf on the podcast. I should, uh, you know, re-familiarize myself with that. Because I haven't seen How to Train Your Dragon basically since it came out. Uh, I had a friend when I was younger who was big into it, uh, who was familiar with the books. But 
I'm also very familiar with the books, too. Loved them. They are good. All right. Well, folks, I am and have been Maya, and today I was joined by... Always have been, always will be Dylan. I was Wolf. And I am Ian. Until next time, bye. Bye.